I invite you to take your Bible to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, and we're going to read from verse number 16. Actually, for context, we're going to read just from verse 14 all the way through to uh, verse 34. Most of that will be up on the screen. Oh, no, it won't be. I beg your pardon. I don't think they did that. So they're in the, I'm reading from an NASB Bible, and so we'll go from there. Verse 14 of Acts chapter 17, the Bible says, Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. That's in Berea. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? And others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all your aspects, all your respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the, all the earth, all the face of the earth, sorry, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite. Aropagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And we trust that God will add blessing to the reading of his precious world. 
Last Sunday afternoon, uh, Heather and I were downtown for the weekend enjoying uh, her birthday and after we'd watched uh, some church on the, the live stream and then on YouTube, we went for a walk down along South Bank and went to a, a place to get some lunch. I was walking along and it's a very interesting place to spend a little bit of time. You see all sorts and types of humanity. You see all sorts and types of people walking along, and I don't know what you like in public places, but I'm a bit of a people watcher. I like to watch people, and, and you see the outfits and some of the bizarre things. And as I was walking along, just looking and, and, and thinking about what I was seeing, it just kind of hit me like a weight. How do you reach a world like this for Christ? It is so messed up. Messed up in all ways and shapes. I saw homosexual couples walking along holding hands. Something that wouldn't have happened even 10, 15 years ago. You see people made up in the bizarrest creations of makeup. And, it, and you just wonder, what was the thought process that brought you to do that? But then you look... And if you can catch their eyes and just look and see for a moment, in a lot of cases you see loneliness and you see emptiness. You see a strive inside them to somehow be something of significance in a world that's racing around at top speed. And you just wonder, Lord, how do you reach these people with the gospel? We live in a world that's messed up. We live in a world that's been turned on its head. Everything is out of order because of sin in our world. And the Lord Jesus left us a great commission to go and make disciples of all the nations to bring them into submission to God as King, as His disciples. And we saw last time we were looking in Acts 17, Paul and, and how he went to fulfill the great commission. We saw Paul and we are to do as he did as he persisted in ministry as he presented the gospel through godly living from the scriptures and in his preaching and teaching. And we saw how we're to do the same things and encourage our listeners to investigate the text themselves as he saw them doing, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And today I want to continue that same theme and message of turning our world right side up. How are we going to do that? And one of the answers we can take from the Scriptures is by following Paul's example. And I want us to see three things from this text this morning. Number one, that we need to be provoked in spirit as he was. And we'll see what that means. That we need to be proclaiming the God who can be known. This world worships all sorts of things. And we have the tremendous blessing and privilege of knowing the one true God who can be known, never fully. We'll never fully know God. That's impossible. God is infinite and we are finite, but we can know him. And thirdly, we are to be pleading for the world's repentance and living it out ourselves. So first of all, I want you to notice what Paul did in Athens. And we see in verse 14, Timothy and Silas had remained in Berea. Paul had been guided to the sea and then to Athens after some Thessalonian Jews had come to Berea looking to make trouble for him as he had preached the gospel both there and in Berea. And now in verse 16, he's waiting for Timothy and Silas to arrive. 
And although going solo into an unreached, unevangelized pagan city like Athens was certainly dangerous, yet Paul is anxious to begin. If Paul had gone and done a few days of sightseeing around Athens, he might have been amazed at Athens' beauty and sophistication. It was unparalleled as a city in terms of its architecture, its sculptures, its paintings. But Paul was not interested in any of that. Paul, we know, was a graduate of the universities of both Tarsus and Jerusalem. He possessed a massive mind and intellect. He could have listened. He could have even contributed to the discussions between philosophers and politicians and statesmen that were going on in the Agora. But Paul was not interested in that either. Rather, if you notice in verse 23, the Bible says he had examined the objects of their worship, the idols that were there. He had found an altar to an unknown, the unknown God. And in verse 16, the Bible says that he was observing the city full of idols. Athens was literally smothered or overloaded with idols. First century Greek writers described Athens like this. There were more gods or idols in Athens than all the rest of the country. One writer said it's easier to find a god, meaning an idol, than a man. John Stott, writing about Acts, said that Athens was a veritable forest of idols. There were innumerable temples and shrines and altars. The entire pantheon of the Greek gods were all represented there. And they were made of stone, of brass, of gold, of silver, of ivory and marble, marble, sculpted and carved and finished by the finest of sculptors and artists in the ancient Greek world. But Paul was blind to it all. You know, if Paul had walked into Melbourne in March 2023, I don't think he would have been impressed by the architecture, the engineering, or the skills that we have needed to create our buildings, our information and digital technology, or our fast cars, our faster trains, and our super fast aircraft. I don't think Paul would have been impressed by that at all. He certainly would not have been impressed by our political, financial, and business accomplishments Paul would have been just as blind to that, to all that, for the very same reason. And the reason is that Paul was provoked in his spirit. Just as Paul saw the idols, he was provoked in his spirit back then, so he would have grieved over the idols that we have set up, the idols of wealth and fame and beauty and power. You walk through the city of Melbourne or any great city in our day and age, and you see the idols made to those things as they rise for hundreds of feet into the air. The idols of youth and long life, individualism and free speech at the demand that everybody else agrees with us regardless. Paul would have just as surely been provoked in his spirit here today in Melbourne as he was then in Athens. Our world hasn't changed. In some aspects, technology, maybe it has, but the heart of man is just as sinful. The heart of man is just as much seeking for idols to replace God now as then. In verse 16, the Bible says that he was provoked within his spirit. And I have to confess, as I went through my week thinking about this message, that was the one phrase that came back to my mind over and over again. I'm not going to spend all my time on it, but it just got to me. He was provoked. 
The word means he was stirred, he was irritated or angered. It's in the imperfect tense, meaning it was not just momentary and gone. It was an ongoing, rising provocation in his spirit by what he saw. He was not provoked simply because man was failing to fulfill what God had designed for us to our loss, but rather our pursuit of the things we idolize deprives God of the love and worship and adoration that he alone deserves from us, his creatures. The same word for Paul's provocation is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Paul would have used. And it's used to describe God's jealous response to Israel's idolatry. In Deuteronomy 9, verse 7, Moses said to the people of Israel, Do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. In Isaiah 65, verses 2 and 3, God speaks and says, I've spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts, a people who continually provoke me to my face. Brothers and sisters, this is not a very popular thing to say in church nowadays, but the Lord our God is a jealous God, jealous for His people's love. The Lord commanded His people in Exodus 34, verses 13 and 14, that they should have no other worship, they should not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. God is jealous for His people's wholehearted affections, our love, our adoration, our worship, and our obedience. Jeremiah 2, verses 12 and 13 express God's heart so well. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, for my people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God is jealous for man, his creatures, love, adoration, and devotion. Paul, who understood the gospel and something of God's heart, he knew that it was not no longer merely the Jews who are God's chosen people. The Gentiles also are included in God's kingdom. Paul recognized that in Gentile idolatry, we are committing two great evils against God who created, who sustains, and who guides us providentially all through this life. We're forsaking Him, refreshing fountain of living waters. And we're carving out broken cisterns to hold still, warm, dirty water that cannot refresh us. You say, how have we done this? Well, I never carved out a well or a cistern in all my life. What are you talking about? We've done it by trying to find satisfaction and joy and security and hope in things other than God. Things like wealth, things like power, like fame, like individualism. We have, in effect, carved out a well to hold water from which we want to drink to satisfy our thirst, but God alone is the satisfier of all our thirst. You will not find satisfaction in the pursuit of wealth or power or money or possessions, no matter how hard you try. You get the latest, greatest, bestest, most up-to-date thing you can possibly get, and guess what? Three months from now, they'll come out with a new version that does twice what the old version did, and all of a sudden, your great accomplishment, your great possession, it doesn't do what it should have done, right? We've all got these things, right? These horrible little things we run around with. 
Some of us have got massive ones that open up on both sides. It's really cool. And, you, and we think, wow, it's the newest great. And, and a month from now, this is worth 25 cents because they come up with a new one that's even more. That's, that's our whole life. That's the life of the world we live in, isn't it? Last year's fashions don't cut it anymore. We need the new fashion. Last year's model doesn't cut it. We need the new one. And our world is constantly trying to find satisfaction and joy and security and hope in all these things that we fill our lives with. And it cannot satisfy because God alone is the satisfier of our thirst, our emotional thirst, our physical thirst, but most of all, our spiritual thirst. Paul saw their idols and he was provoked. He was provoked because he'd come to see the world through God's eyes. He was provoked because he had come to love what God loved and to hate what God hated and to grieve over the things that God grieved over and to be jealous for the things that God was jealous for, for God's sake. So how did Paul gain such a perspective to be provoked in his spirit? How do we come in our day and age to be provoked like he was over what we see in the world around us? I think the answer comes simply from Paul's own words in Philippians 3, verses 7 to 9. He says, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish that I might gain Christ. Brothers and sisters, if we want to see our world turned upside down, or pardon me, turned right side up, it's already upside down, for Christ, we must consider everything that's a gain, a profit, a security to us as loss, as garbage, or to quote the old King James, as dung compared to the surpassing excellency of knowing Christ Jesus. Paul was provoked in his spirit over the idolatry of Athens because he knew what it was to truly know Christ, to know freedom from sin, to know fellowship and satisfaction in God. You wonder how it is he can go from city to city, beaten in one city, preach the gospel, beat in the next city, preach the gospel. He just keeps going. Why? I think if we had been in Paul's shoes, we would have said, you know, I think the Lord's calling me back to Melbourne to, you know, uh, maybe uh, paint some pictures or something. I'll do something else. But no, he just kept right on going everywhere he went, knocking on the doors, standing in the street corners, preaching the gospel. He went to Berea with the beatings of Thessalonica. Sorry, the beatings of uh, the place before into Thessalonica. And he preached the gospel there, still beaten and bruised and bloody from where he just endured. And he kept on going. Why? Because that was nothing to him compared to the surpassing excellency of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. And what challenged my heart, and I think that's why the the Lord just kept bringing that idea of provoked in his spirit back to my heart, which to drive home the point to me that I need to stop seeing the world the way the world sees the world and start seeing the world the way God sees it. It's kind of a shocking thing to to our minds to realize that in a day to come, God is going to destroy this world. You remember the day the disciples are with Jesus and they're walking out 
And they're seeing all the temple mount and all of its beauty, the, the great slabs of marble and the gold and everything. Apparently, at certain times of day, the sun would hit the side of the temple and it would be blindingly bright. And they say to him, Jesus, look at, look at all this. Look at the, this, the temple. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. The day is coming very soon when not one stone will be left on another. The whole thing will be destroyed. Brothers and sisters, look at the world around us. To my own heart, I make the call to yours too. Don't fall in love with this present world and what's going on in this present world because God is going to destroy it. Why? For it's idolatry for its refusal to submit and bend the knee to Christ. My brother and my sister, is it possible that we have allowed the things of this present world to become idols in our eyes? Is it possible the reason why the 21st century church has so little effect on our world? I mean, they were reporting it all over the known world, the faith of the Romans. Your faith has been reported all over the world. Everybody knew what was going on with the Roman believers. People three blocks from here don't know what's going on here. Is it possible, just a little possible, that we've created for ourselves idols and cisterns that hold no water. And we come to church week by week. We sing the hymns, we pray the prayers, we read the text, and we carry on living just like the world around us, almost having our Christianity like a, something safe to keep in our back pocket so that when the time comes, we know we'll be safe. That's the problem. May God help us all, every last one of us, to be provoked in our spirit, to speak and act, to turn our idle, saturated world the right side up. Paul's provocation quickly became his proclaiming of his God. In verse 23, the Bible says he found an altar to the unknown God. Those altars to the unknown God were in multiple places. The story has it that some philosopher during a great disaster said, take a sheep that you've got designated for sacrifice and follow it. And wherever it rests, lies down, pick him out of the way, build an altar there, call it to the unknown God and offer that sheep up. And so these unknown God altars were all over the place. And Paul saw this. And you know, brothers and sisters, we have to stop for a moment and consider the terrible sadness of a people who are created by God to know and love and live at peace with Him, knowing fullness of joy and satisfaction in God, but who are instead only fearfully offering sacrifices to Him as simply unknown. No wonder His Spirit was provoked You've got an altar to an unknown God. I can declare and proclaim and tell you all about this God who is to you yet unknown. The one whom I know. The one whom I've given up everything to know more deeply. The one who I long to know more fully. And so he does. So Paul was proclaiming his God to them. Second point. In verse 17, he was reasoning with them in multiple places. Just as in verses 2 or 3 and back in Thessalonica, he had reasoned, explained, and gave evidence of Jesus and the resurrection. So now he does the same here. Notice the places where he proclaims his God. As always, he begins in the synagogue. He reasons in the marketplace. And then in verse 22, later on, he proclaims it in the Oropagus. 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, listen. There is a desperate need for the gospel to be presented in these three key areas. In religious places, in churches. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul again proclaims the gospel to the established church in Corinth. It was of the first and the highest importance for him. Not all those, let's be just blunt about it, not everybody here today truly knows the saving grace of the living God. How do we know that? Well, the Bible makes it clear that's the case. And we who do know God and His grace need to be constantly reminded of our salvation by God's grace through faith in Christ alone, just as the Scriptures teach us. So firstly, it's in religious places. Secondly, the gospel needs to be proclaimed in public places, in the streets, in the parks, in the markets, in the open air. Oh, one of us is just about to join open-air crusades and go out and spend time preaching the gospel in open-air places. It's fantastic ministry. We need also to be making the gospel known in thinking places, schools and universities. The Oropagus was a place where all the modern ideas of thought and philosophy were brought up and discussed and analyzed and inspected. We'll see that in a few minutes. The gospel needs to be proclaimed in those places. Uh, you look at some of the uh, apologetics ministries. They go into universities. They go into schools. Uh, some of you may know Bernie Power. I've mentioned it before. He's a, a missionary to the Muslim people. He goes right into the mosques in Melbourne. And when they all bow down, he stands up. And when they bow down, he, or when they stand up, he bows down. He doesn't take his shoes off. And by the end of the service, everybody's, who is that guy? What's he doing here? Bernie looks as Muslim as you can imagine with very dark colored skin and so on. And, and he, after the service, they all flock to him. What are you doing? Who are you? What, what's here? And he will say, my name is Bernie. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm here to talk to you about your soul. You think, that's a ministry. He says, you know, the amazing thing is they listen. They stand there and they'll, they'll invite him back for debates with the imams and all that. And he, they listen to him. And he preaches the gospel. Notice in verse 18, Paul was conversing. Literally, it means he was speaking or comparing and debating with the Jews, the God-fearers and those Epicurean and Stoic philosophers he happened to meet there. And his ministry highlights for us a desperate need to communicate the truth to the religious, to the seekers, to the intellectual and thinkers, to the unwilling, for then they will have no excuse. And perhaps one amongst them will become like Paul, another Paul. Greatly used of God for his glory. Beloved, listen, we need never be afraid of the gospel's power to meet and answer all the wrong views of God and reality. Paul stood there in the marketplace and proclaimed the gospel. He reasoned and conversed. When he goes into the Oropagus, some believe, some sneer and mock and walk away. That will always be the case. But some, sneer, some did believe and joined themselves to Paul. The gospel can hold its own in all arenas. Spurgeon said something like this, and apparently he made this, this same statement about three different ways and three different places, but this is what he said in one case. He says, there he is in the cage, speaking of the gospel, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. And in Spurgeon's own unique way, he says, well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should simply stand back and open the door and let the lion of the gospel out. <laughs> this is a great way to say it, isn't it? 
Just preach the gospel. It will stand on its own. It has its own power to convert people. Paul was conversing and reasoning. He was, in verse 18 also, proclaiming and preaching. In verse 18 it says he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And the implication is the whole message of the gospel is contained in those two words, Jesus and the resurrection, because there's two ends of the story, isn't it? Resurrection is the far end and Jesus is the beginning. So we can add into that that Jesus was being proclaimed. The whole message of the gospel of Christ was being proclaimed, that Jesus was born of a virgin, truly man and truly God. That Jesus lived a sinless, righteous life before God and man. That Jesus had a ministry of healing the sick, of cleansing lepers, of casting out demons, of raising the dead and preaching the gospel. That Jesus' suffering and bloodshed and death on the cross was for our, in our place to atone for our sin and bring us to God. And Jesus' triumphant resurrection declared him to be the Son of God with power. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection to them. And the time he spent in the synagogue and the marketplace reasoning was likely far longer than his time in the Oropagus. Those Greek philosophers who heard him took Paul and brought him before the Oropagus. Now that Oropagus was an aristocratic council or court whose role was to adjudicate prospective lecturers and philosophers and speakers to determine who was allowed, who could be free to lecture in philosophy and religion to the Athenians. They were kind of like a, a pagan philosophical ordination committee. And to, the, to them, Paul makes his defense and proclamation of his known God. So how do we equip ourselves? I, mean, I don't know about you, but I want to go out there and engage the culture and talk to them about their faith. But sometimes you feel a little bit ill-equipped, don't you? You kind of go, I'm not sure if I'm going to have an answer to every question. What do we do? How do we equip ourselves to do what Paul did? To reason for the gospel, to converse about the gospel, and proclaim Christ. Well, beloved, it requires exactly what Peter commanded. In 2 Peter 1 verse 5, Peter says, Now for this reason also, applying all diligence in your faith... Supply or add moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. We received salvation through knowledge of Christ and faith in Christ. We grow in godliness by adding to our faith moral excellence and even further, greater knowledge. Why does the Bible make so much about reading, studying, memorizing, and meditating on the scriptures? Oh, my young friend Nick, where is he? He's back there somewhere, he and I started meeting together, and we challenged each other how many verses we can memorize, and we're memorizing Scripture, and I'm so grateful that Nick suggested that. I've had periods in my life where I've memorized lots, and then I kind of fall out of the habit and don't do it for a while, and then someone else kind of spurs me on, you've got to memorize Scripture, so I get back into it, and I was so encouraged this week how often a verse I'd memorized came back to mind, even in preparing the sermon. Memorizing and meditating on Scripture, filling our hearts and our minds with Scripture and the knowledge of God. That's part of what Paul prays in Colossians 1, 9, and 10, that we'd be, we would be increasing in the knowledge of God. What's the purpose of it all? So I can show you how smart I am, right? Well, I couldn't fool you guys for two seconds. You all know I'm not that smart. I'm just a dumb chippy. But you know what? God uses dumb chippies who fill their heads full of Scripture. 
and fill their hearts full of Scripture and learn to pray that Scripture and preach that Scripture and share that Scripture and minister it. And the wonderful thing is when we do that, you know who gets the glory? It ain't the dumb chippy. It's the God who gave him the Word. We equip ourselves by building onto our faith moral excellence and onto moral excellence knowledge. We receive salvation through knowledge of Christ and faith in Christ. We grow in godliness by adding to our faith moral excellence and further greater knowledge. We increase in our knowledge of him and we're more able to make a defense of the hope we have in us. Peter said... In 1 Peter 3, 14 and 15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make an defense, an apologia to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you with gentleness and respect. We're able to reason and converse and make a defense of the faith, the hope we have in Christ as we grow in our faith and we grow in our knowledge of God. Notice also in verses 24 to 31, Uh, Paul expounds to them, to the Areopagus, the unknown God. And what we really have in these verses, by the way, as you're reading through the book of Acts and you see the speeches and sermons there, what you've got is not the whole thing. You've actually got like bullet points. They would have said a lot more than just this little tiny bit that you got got here. But the Spirit of God, in His infinite wisdom, gave us this. And there's so much packed into what Paul says in about six, seven verses about God that it's worth just to take time to unpack what he says. So, beloved, for us who know and love the Lord, consider this morning as we go through these and worship in your hearts as you hear again of the God that we have come to know and love and serve. To those who do not yet know the Lord, and I know there are some here, Listen to how the Spirit of God through Luke's pen describes the one true God who can be known by each of us whom you can know through Christ. Listen. In verse 24, Paul says that he is the God who made the world. He's the creator God. He's the sole architect, engineer, and master craftsman of all creation. Nothing exists that he did not first create both the raw materials and the wisdom and knowledge to enable industrious humanity to shape into tools and finished projects. He created the spirit realm, the angels and demons who later rebelled against God. He created all mankind. We're the highest order in creation, created in God's own image and likeness. No human being is an accident of nature or random chance. God designed you and created you in His image and His likeness. For this reason, every human has value and worth because we are created by God's design in God's image and for God's glory and purposes. In verse 24, Paul again says that He is Lord. He's the sovereign, supreme God. He's Lord over all the angelic and demonic realms. They're all under His authority, limited in their activities and abilities, but they're under His authority. He is Lord over all the physical realm. He controls and governs creation from the subatomic particles to the greatest, most immense star in all the universe. He controls and governs, not with explosive power or great leverage, but as the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, He does it with words. That's power. That's the God that we know. 
He's Lord over all humanity. And the only creatures existing who are in rebellion to God's lordship are fallen demons and fallen humanity. We have all sinned and disobeyed God. The very God to whom we all owe our submission, our loyalty, our obedience, and our love. Verse 24 again, he is a God who does not live in temples made with human hands. He's the immense and utterly separate God. Solomon said it best back in 1 Kings 8 verse 27. He said, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens, the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this little tiny house that I've built? He's separate because he's spirit outside of time and space. He is always being. He is never becoming. He's separate because he's absolutely holy. Oh, beloved, if if I could impress one thing on your heart to gain a grasp, to gain something of a hold on the holiness of God. The seraphim never cease to proclaim to one another. As I understand that text in Isaiah 6 has the idea that one said it to another and before the words had even fallen, another one is saying it back to the first one and they just keep back and forth all of heaven declaring the holiness of God. Holy, he's separate. God is utterly separate from sin and defilement and rebellion. He has no part in the universe and no part of creation is identical to him, which is why no image can be made to represent him. He's supreme and elevated. He is fully exalted in his own understanding of himself and he's ever rising and ever increasing in his creature's understanding. You and I, as we go through all of eternity... A billion years into eternity, our estimation and understanding of God will still be increasing. Isn't that amazing? We will never cease to grow in our understanding of God. That's as best I understand that, how that can possibly be that we could there and know God. It must always be increasing. He cannot be duly, unduly, sorry, influenced by our world, by others, by even the angelic demonic realms. And being separate from our world, he is then able to act in and upon our world because nothing forces God's hand, nothing influences him, nothing hinders him from acting and intervening. There's no prayer so great he cannot answer it, and he may choose not to for his purposes, but he's able There's no situation so terrible, so messed up that God cannot unravel it and bring order and peace to it. This is the God who can be known by you and I. And so the question is, do you know him? That's what Paul's Paul's doing. He's declaring the unknown God so that they can know him. And I wonder if halfway through his discourse as he was expounding on these great truths, he didn't pause and look around and say, well, do you know him? you got an altar out there to an unknown God. You can know him. In verse 25, he is the God who is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. He is the self-existing, self-sustaining God. He does not need us for maintenance or support. We cannot provide God with anything that he lacks or needs. God is utterly independent. If you describe God in one word, Piper was asked this, John Piper, and he said, you describe God like this, he's free, absolutely free. 
utterly independent. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. God is, sorry, he is not need our worship, our love, or our adoration, but he delights to have it. Why? Because he wants to show us the riches of his grace. He wants to show us the glory of his person. God is absolutely, totally happy in and by himself in the three persons of the Trinity. God is absolutely happy and content. He does not need us for friendship or fellowship. But, but, and here is where we see the immense grace of God toward us. God desires our fellowship and friendship in order to show us the magnitude of the riches of the glory of His grace for our ultimate satisfaction and infinite joy. I don't know how to explain it in in simple human terms. It's like someone calling you out on a really dark night in a really far off place out in the country and saying, look, and take our head and lift our head back so we can look up at the sky. And they're enabling us for a moment to see all the glory of the stars in the heavens. And we kind of go, wow, that's something. He didn't have to, but he brought us out to show us something amazing. And God, in bringing the gospel, and God, in proclaiming the gospel so that we would understand it, is inviting us to come and look and behold the glory of God, to see the riches of the magnitude of his person and be absolutely stunned and amazed and know satisfaction and fulfillment when we see the God who can be known. And the question asks yet again, do you know him? Do you know that God? He can be known. God desires our friendship and fellowship in order to show us the magnitude of the riches of the glory of His grace for our ultimate satisfaction and infinite joy. This is the God who can be known. In verse 25, He Himself gives to all life and breath and all things. He is the creation-sustaining God. Creation, including mankind, cannot exist for one millionth of a second without God's sustaining, upholding power at work. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. So Paul's praying that we would know the power of God toward us. All creation, the entire universe, would fly apart into utter chaos in seconds. We're not the hand, the voice, and the power of God Almighty at work to sustain it all. We exist because God created us. We live because God graciously sustains us. We breathe life-sustaining air. Why? Because God gives it. We eat body-sustaining food, some of us too much, because God supplies it. We drink body-sustaining water because God gives it. We have all things. Romans 8, uh, verse, I think it's 34, talks about it. Because God gives them. We know joy and happiness because God gives them. We know sorrow, pain, and affliction. I'm so glad John prayed that this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the afflictions and the trials you bring to us. God brings those trials. Why? so that we might be drawn ever closer to God in ever greater dependence and trust in God. Listen, you think you're independent? Let me tell you, there's only one thing that we have that we're full of that God did not create or supply. You know what that is? Sin. Someone just said it. That's the only thing that you and I bring. 
sin. Our unbelieving, disobedient respond to God's word and will is the only thing we have that he did not create, but for which he paid the highest price in the death of his son to deal with and remove our sin. Oh, what a God we have. Amen. What a God we have whom we can know and love and serve. Oh, what a God we have to whom we owe our life, our love, our worship, and our all. And he invites us to know him. Do you know him? Not just know lots about him. Anybody could get up and take all my sermon notes and pound out what I just did for the last 10 minutes better, smarter, slower, more poetic than I could ever do it and not know God. Don't kid yourself. Anybody could get up and say all those things. It's not knowing them, it's knowing God. It's having that intimate relationship with God. That's what it's all about. Paul gave up everything that he might know God for the surpassing value of the the excellency he describes of knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. At the end of that little statement, he says, that I may know him. In other words, he hasn't gotten it all yet. He wants more in his life. This is the God that we can know. He requires to be preached and proclaimed to an unbelieving world. We'll turn our world right side up when we preach the gospel of the God who can be known. In verse 26, there's still more. God made all mankind and nations and set their times and boundaries. He's the providential God. That's a wonderful truth contained in those words, is that all mankind are created equal. They're all descending from one single ancient father and mother. Thus endeth racism, by the way. We're all related. Uh, I probably, well, it's a good thing you're sitting down when I told you you're related to me. There you go. It's not so bad. We're all related. Every last one of us, from one man and one woman, the whole earth was populated, right? You, you can't deny that fact. It's right there in Scripture. And God exercised his providential care and governance of the created universe, specifically in this case, in regards to the nations that formed and their assigned homes and lands. God's providence is his all-knowing, all-powerful, loving care as an expression of his perfect goodness toward us. Think about that. I'll give you a headache. God's providence, God's care is his all-knowing, all-powerful, loving care as an expression of his perfect goodness toward us. You stop and read a statement like that, and you just got to sit back for a moment and just try and soak it in. In our context for here and today, you're here. Because God brought you here. You're here because God, in loving care for you, brought you here. You say, it was my car, I drove here. Yes, but God put the desire in your heart to come. I didn't want to come. My parents dragged me. My parents dragged me for many years too. I understand your pain. But God brought you. I didn't want to come. My, my wife, the only way to get to stop nagging is if I go to church, so I go to church. That's it, you know. God bless your wife. God is using her to bring you here. God brought you here. 
God in his providence wants you to hear about him, to come to understand who he is, so that if you already know him, you are better equipped to serve him even more. And if you don't know him, to come to know him through faith in Jesus Christ. And then in verses 27 to 30, Paul breaks into his proclamation of the God he knows to describe God's purpose in all that he has done, all he's just been saying. God's purpose in creating and sustaining and providentially caring for us is that we would all seek for God, that we would grope for Him, that we would find Him. Paul goes on to make the point that it's by God's grace to all mankind that we live and move and have our being. He even quotes Epimenides, one of their own prophets, to say we're His children, meaning only that all humanity are God's creation designed for a relationship with the living God. God's design and purpose is as Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 3, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. God's creating us included the capacity to know and relate to Him. Isn't that amazing? We ought to be staggered and flawed by the fact, not flawed, awed, (laughs) staggered and awed by that fact that God created us with the capacity to know Him to have a relationship with Him, to commune with Him, to understand the gospel and respond and receive that spiritual regeneration, that rebirth. God sustained us so that we might know His grace and kindness in supplying every physical need, that we might know His grace in supplying every spiritual need. God's providential dealing is to bring us to the place where we understand our desperate, critical need of a Savior. Paul says in verse 27, though he, that's God, is not far from each one of us. And here, of course, we interject the problem of all humanity. The problem which Paul no doubt has been discussing and reasoning and conversing about with the Jews and the God-fearers and some of those philosophers over in the marketplace. The problem we all have because of sin. He is not far from us, but the reality, brothers and sisters, is that we're radically separated and cut off from God because of our sin. We love our sin. Sin is that attitude, the motive, the action, that it's disobedience to God. It's rebellion against God. It's a refusal to submit to God. It's our failure to achieve God's standard of holiness. It's our crossing of the limits that God has set for our behavior. It's the response to God that says, we will not have this one to rule over us. That's what sin is. You see a little child who refuses to obey their parents. That's sin. It's not cute. It's sin. And if that isn't corrected out of that child with the rod And with strong discipline, he will grow up thinking he rules the world. And God will have to do whatever he wants. It's absolutely backwards. It's sin. Every lie we've told is sin. Every prideful look or attitude we've expressed is sin. Every time we spread division between brothers and sisters, it's sin. Every time we shed innocent blood, even the assassination of someone else's character, every lustful look... Every time we've plotted and schemed wickedly against another one, it's sin. Every false witness that spreads lies about somebody else is sin. In fact, Proverbs 6, 6 to 19, 16 to 19, says that God considers all those things I just mentioned as sinful abominations against him. 
All except for the last full look. That comes in Jesus' words in Matthew. So why do we need a Savior? And it's the last point that Paul makes about the God who can be known. It's in verse 31. Let's read verses 30 and 31 again. Paul says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. He began his proclamation at the Oropagus discussing their ignorant worship of the unknown God in verse 23. That time's passed because Paul has just spent that time making known to them the unknown God. Paul has preached the God who can be known to them. God is now, through Paul, his spokesman, declaring to them all that they must repent. Why? Because the Bible says that God is the judge of all the earth. He's going to judge every human ever conceived. In that great day when all the nations of the earth are gathered before Christ, he will, with all-knowing wisdom and insight and discernment, judge us. Christ will divide us into two groups. And Matthew 7, 21 to 23 tells us that those who have done the will of God in heaven, his Father in heaven, will be saved. They'll be gathered to Christ and rescued from hell. You say, what is the Father's will? Explained all through the Gospels and all through the Bible. The Father's will for us is to obey him, to repent, to turn away from sinning to believe in and to trust in God, to follow Christ, denying ourselves, choosing to die with him rather than to live any more for ourselves. And he says that those who have not done the will of the Father in heaven will be rejected and cast out into the darkness of the fires of hell for all eternity. You know, you're not supposed to talk about hell anymore. It's just not politically correct. Well, it's biblically correct. It makes us all so uncomfortable when you talk about hell and judgment and fire and doom and gloom and wrath. I would 10,000 times make you, rather make you uncomfortable about that to make absolutely clear to you that rejection of God is to welcome hell because that's what it means. Lastly, last point, Paul was pleading for repentance repentance. in just a few sentences. In verse 29, he says, We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or bronze, etc. Repentance is, first of all, to change our understanding from what we think to what Scripture says about God and about ourselves. Repentance is to turn away from sin and turn to God. Brothers and sisters, if we would see our world turn right side up again. We must become provoked in our spirit about the things that grieve God. The loss of his rightful love and worship by his creation, who instead are ungodly, idol-loving, and self-loving. But not just provoked into doing nothing, into getting angry and irritated and, and, and fuminating in the back room, It's provoked into acting and speaking, to going out and reasoning and conversing and making known the God of the universe. Secondly, if we would see our world turn right side up, we must proclaim the God who can be known. That's the only way. There's no other hope for this world but the gospel. 
reasoning with them, making an argument, making a defense, giving proof and evidence that Jesus is the Christ, that he died, he was buried, and he rose again to save sinners from God's wrath. We converse, we proclaim, we reason, we argue, but God alone saves the sinner. And lastly, brothers and sisters, if we would see this world turn right side up, it's not just preaching the half gospel of God's grace and God's love to save you from hell so you can live however you like between now and then. No way. That is not the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel is repent and believe the gospel. That's how God is going. That's what God has ordained. That was Christ's commission to all of us the day he left. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey all things whatsoever I've told you right? May God help us to do exactly what Paul did, to follow his example, to become provoked in our spirit over what's going on in our world, provoked to preach and to preach repentance. Amen? Let's pray. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray and then we're going to sing the benediction, please. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come again. We continue, O God, in your presence. We give thanks to you and we praise you, O God, for the gospel. We thank you, O Lord God, for the Lord Jesus who died, who suffered and bled and died on a cross, shedding his precious blood that our sins might be forgiven, that our conscience might be cleansed, that we might know you, whom to know is eternal life. Father, we give thanks for the gospel. We give thanks, O God, for men like Paul. And Father, we would not lose sight of the fact that he is just a man, a mere man that you called from the worst of circumstances to go out and to suffer as well, to preach the gospel with this overriding desire in his heart all through his life and ministry that he might know you and the power of your resurrection. Father, I plead with you for all of us. We live, O God, in an affluent Western society where it is so easy to get caught up with all the trinkets and trash that our society puts out, to build idols in our own hearts over all sorts of things. Father, help us, O God, we pray, to put those idols away, to renew our love and our devotion to you, to be provoked in our spirit over what's going on in this world, but provoked to do something, to get up, to go out, and to make known the God who can be known. Father, this morning I would again cry out to you for those who are standing in this room, Father, who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Father, I pray, I plead with you, O God, that you would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, drive home to them their need of a Savior, the reality that judgment is coming, the wonder, the awe-inspiring majesty of the living God, who you are and what you have done. May that strike deep into their souls. Open their eyes and their ears and their hearts to respond, we pray, O God. 
And we ask these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.